I'd come back, uh, wound up the war in the, the China-Burma-India theater out there in the jungles, and came back to Hollywood. I was still in uniform because my clothes wouldn't fit. I'd lost weight. I hadn't gained weight. <laughs> so uh, my brother Jack was uh, playing on Cavalcade of America. Now, when I left, Jack Zoller was acting. I said, Jack Zoller's directing now? He says, yes, yeah. I'm working on the show this afternoon. He says, I've got a conflict. We all had conflicts in those days. He said, could you stand in for me on the first reading? It was on Cavalcade of America. He said, he's got the lead role, a character called Archie with Lloyd Nolan as the star. So I said, oh, my God, I haven't read you know, a script in three and a half years. You know, I said, I don't think I could. He says, just rehearsal. So I said, okay. So I said, okay. So I go down, and I'm still in uniform. Read the part around the table. And Jack said, how would Jack feel, you think, if I let you have this part? Oh, I said, oh, please, no, don't, don't, don't do that, don't do that. Oh, so about that time, after the first reading, Jack comes in, and Jack Zoller approaches him about it. And I said, I have none of it. No, I won't do that. And Jack said, you're doing it. And he walked out of the studio, says, you're stuck. So here I am, and I went on the air, and, you know, with, before an audience, all the lights, and I was really... I was in sort of a dream world. Sure. I, I didn't realize Still after the in show. Your uniform? I didn't realize it was a wonderful part. This Arkansas character, and uh, he just said, "I think your voice is better for it." <laughs> but after the show, I just I thought, "What have I done?" <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Was I really on the air? And it was a strange, yeah. strange <laughs> feeling. Sure. So anyway, that got me started. Neil Reagan heard it. Next day, I'm called for Dr. Christian. George Fogel, and this boy, the first week, I'm right out of the Army and working six or seven shows in the first week. And I thought it was going to take me a long time to get started again. On Saturday, July 9, 1949, Dangerous Assignment debuted on NBC starring Brian Dunleavy as Steve Mitchell. Each week, Mitchell was sent to a different location to crack into the bed of discontent and rout the perpetrators. Herb Butterfield and Betty Moran co-starred, with Hollywood regulars, like the just-heard Sam Edwards, filling out the supporting roles. The initial summer run ended on August 20th, but NBC picked up the series in February of 1950. That April, Ford Motors signed on for a few broadcasts. April 17th's episode was called UFOs in Ecuador. Dangerous Assignment, starring Brian Donlevy as Steve Mitchell. Morning, Commissioner. Steve. You know, this better be important. There's a certain redhead who was just dying to go for a long ride in the country today. Now I can't even give her a chance to walk back. This is important, Steve. Ever hear of the Triangle Airline? No. It's an American charter outfit owned by a man named Kovac. They fly cargo across the northern part of South America, from Ecuador to Brazil. The last ten days, three of their planes have disappeared over the jungles, vanished without a trace. Pilots haven't been heard from since. So are private airlines in trouble. Since when have we been pulling chestnuts out of the fire for outfits like that? Ordinarily, we wouldn't be interested, but the circumstances accompanying the disappearance of these cargo planes makes it our concern. What circumstances? Well, um, I don't quite know how to tell you, Steve. Oh, now, let's not be bashful, Commissioner. What do you mean? Flying saucers. What did you say? You heard me, flying saucers. Commissioner, I'm a pretty patient guy. But 
If you think I'm going down to South America and start looking for flying saucers... That's just what you are going to do, Steve, and your plane leaves in an hour. Now, look, don't tell me you're going to give me a Buck Rogers ray gun to shoot them down with. This is no joke, Steve. Look, I don't care whether it's flying saucers or flying dishpans. That area is too close to the Panama Canal for comfort. You'll be met in Ecuador by a man named Drake, the chief pilot of the airlines. He'll fill you in on the background. Well, that's it. You've got your assignment. Good luck. National Broadcasting Company is proud to present Dangerous Assignment, starring Brian Donlevy as Steve Mitchell, colorful, two-fisted government agent. At all those places of the world where danger and intrigue walk hand in hand, there you will find Steve Mitchell on another Dangerous Assignment. Well, this assignment really takes the cake. I've had my share of screw-loose jobs, but flying saucers yet. It's Wednesday night when I get to Ecuador. Drake, the chief pilot of Triangle Airlines, is waiting for me at the airport. He bustles me into the co-pilot seat of one of their cargo ships, and we take off and head east. It's about a two-hour hop to Santa Rosa, Mitchell. You should be there about midnight. What's at Santa Rosa? One of our fields. Kovac, the owner, is waiting there for you. You uh, do most of your flying at night around here, Drake, huh? Mm, all of it. Less turbulence over these mountains. You a flyer, too? Oh, now and then. Oh, too bad you're not looking for a job. If this monkey business keeps up, I'm going to be fresh out of pilots. Just what has been going on? You tell me. It's happened three times now. Radio flash from the pilot about seeing flying saucers. Then the radio goes dead and the plane's never heard of again. You searched the jungle near the route for the planes. From the air. The country's too rugged for a ground search. <laughs> Hey, what was that? Mitchell, look outside, all those lights. Yeah, hey, they look like rings or discs swirling around. They're right alongside of us. I'm going to go back aft in the plane. Maybe I can get a better look at them. Uh, Mitchell! Drake, what is it? What's the matter? Drake! The Drake just grabs at his chest and slumps over. The plane starts into a dive. I jump back into my seat and try to level it out. I remember... Noticing Drake had been flying a heading of 95 degrees, so I hold it there. By the time I can look outside again, the whirling things are gone. I reach for the radio. T3 calling Santa Rosa Tower. T3 calling Santa Rosa Tower. Over. Santa Rosa Tower to T3. Go ahead. T3 to Santa Rosa. This is Steve Mitchell. Keep in touch with me. I've got to bring this bucket of bolts in, and I don't know anything about the route or the field. Over. Santa Rosa to T3. What happened to Drake Mitchell? Over. I'll tell you about it when I get there. Right now, that's what concerns me. Over. Stay on 95 degrees. If you're on schedule, you'll be over the field in an hour. Your course follows a valley. You'll know it if you get off it all right. There's a high mountain range on each side. Over. Thanks a lot for the pleasant thought. I'll see you in about an hour. I hope. Over and out. So, for the next hour... I nurse a strange plane between two mountain ranges I can't see on a night black enough to play post office. All the while, I'm trying to convince myself I didn't see what I know I did. Drake is still unconscious, but he stirs a little now and then. Finally, I pick out the lights of Santa Rosa Airfield and manage to bring the ship in okay. 
Yeah? Well, I'm George, Kovac's nephew. Yeah? I was talking to you on the radio. Oh. Sure glad you made it, okay? You are glad. Come on, give me a hand with Drake here. Okay. Hey, he's coming out of it. Yeah. Uh, Drake. Drake. Uh, what? Oh, my chest. What happened to you, Drake? I don't know. Right after we saw those things, I suddenly felt like I'd been kicked in the chest by a mule. That's all I can remember. But there's not a mark on you. Yeah, great. Flying saucers aren't enough. Now we've got invisible rays. Well, why didn't it hit you too, Mitchell? I don't know. Wait. I just started aft when it happened. Guess it's a good thing for you. You did. Yeah. Come on, Joyce. We'll get Drake taken care of, and then we'll talk to your uncle. Mr. Mitchell, your description of what you saw during your flight tallies with those the missing pilots radioed in. I tell you frankly, I'm on the ragged edge with this airline. I've lost three planes. One more and I'm ruined. Isn't your line insured, Mr. Kovac? Why, yes, but this is more than money. It's a matter of prestige. Look, Uncle Emil, if you'd taken my advice a month ago when the Van Horn Exporting Company wanted to buy you out... George, for the last time, I'll not tolerate any advice from you as to how to run my affairs. Sure, you stick your nose in all my affairs, but I'm not supposed to open my mouth where yours are concerned. If you don't keep a civil tongue in your head... (laughs) Look, uh, gentlemen, I don't want to stir up a hornet's nest between you, but what is this Van Horn Exporting Company? They ship crates of carved wooden statues regularly on our planes. Our largest customer, as a matter of fact. About two months ago, they approached me with a substantial offer to buy the line. But just before the trouble started, they notified me that they were withdrawing their offer. Bad business conditions, they said. Any particular reason why business should be bad? Oh, there have been rumors about some mysterious revolutionary party organizing lately. That sort of thing always has a bad effect on business in these countries. I see. Uh, Mitchell, what will be your first step? Well, I think I'll pay a visit to the Van Horn Exporting Company in the morning. Why? You certainly don't think they're involved in this flying saucer deal, do you? Look, when you don't know where to start, one place is as good as another. Besides, I'm sure the Van Horn Company is a lot closer than Mars. This the office of the Van Horn Exporting Company? Yes, it is. Well, I'd like to talk to the boss. Is he around? Yes, I'm the boss, as you call it. Huh? You? I'm Herta Van Horn. Oh, well, looks like the company is in good hands. Thank you. What can I do for you, Mr... Mitchell. Steve Mitchell. Uh, Your company ships cargo pretty regularly with the Triangle Airlines. I have been, but if their present trouble continues, I think I will have to make other arrangements. You're down here to investigate that trouble, aren't you? I don't remember telling you that. One picks up things here and there. Yeah, I guess one does. A couple of months ago, you offered to buy the airline, didn't you? Yes, I did. But that was before the trouble started. Naturally, I'm not interested now. Well, according to my information, you withdrew your offer just before the trouble started. (laughs) I see that you too pick up things here and there. Yes, I began to hear rumors about the formation of a revolutionary party. I decided it would be unwise to make a large investment under those conditions. I see. You know, that's the second time I've heard this rumor about a revolutionary party. Oh? What about it? Oh, nothing. Except it seems like a pretty convenient time to start that rumor circulating. I don't know what you're trying to prove, Steve, but I wish you luck. 
Thanks, Herta. Maybe meeting you has been luck. One never knows. I expect I will see you again. You expect right, Herta. And soon. Hi, Mitchell. George told me I'd find you here in the office. Yeah. Come on in, Drake. How are you feeling today? Well, a lot better, thanks. My chest still hurts a little. Mm. I'd sure give a lot to know what hit me last night. So would I. Doing some paperwork this morning? Yeah. I've been checking cargo invoices and radio logs. I've discovered a couple of pretty interesting things. Huh? What? Look, each time a plane has disappeared, it's been carrying a shipment from the Van Horn Company. Hmm? Well, what does that prove? I don't know yet. Take a look at this copy of the invoice. Mm-hmm. Well, what about it? How many Van Horn crates are listed there? Uh, let's see. Uh, six. Yeah. But isn't that number a little smudged on this copy? Yeah, it looks like it. Who handles these invoices on this end? Well, sometimes Kovac and sometimes George. Hmm. How big are those uh, Van Horn crates? Mm, five, six feet long. Now, what are you getting at, Mitchell? I'm not sure yet, but here's something else. According to the radio logs, in each case, the pilot reported sighting the flying saucers about 20 minutes after takeoff. So? Now, take a look at this map. 20 minutes out at the course and speed your planes fly should put them right near this mountain. Yeah, Mount San Anselmo. Look, what are you getting at? Well, suppose those flying saucers came from the ground, Drake. You know... tell me you're going into those jungles. Sure. You know anyone who could guide me? Seems to me one of those mechanics has a brother named Pablo, some sort of a guide, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Mitchell, you ought to think this over before you go in. I have thought it over. Now, see if you can round up that guide, will you? I'd like to get started as soon as possible. How far you figure we've come since we left the jeep, Pablo? Well, at least ten miles, sir. Well, we ought to be getting close to the spot, then. Brother, this jungle is thick. This is the only trail through it, huh? See, I can believe it. Senor, watch out! Huh? Why the fly and tackle? Look, senor. Huh? Look there in the trail in front of you. I don't see anything. Quiet. Look more closely. Hidden by the underbrush on the ground. Yeah, I see it now. A rope noose spread over the trail. See, and over there, senor. See the tree which is bent almost double? Mm-hmm. Another step and we'd have been dangling from that tree like two apples. Come on, let's bring that trap. Quick. Apple, senor, you... Look, someone's obviously hiding around here waiting to catch us dangling from that rope. Let's make him think he succeeded. Here's a dead branch beside the trail. Give me a hand with it. See, si. Got it? See. Si. Okay. Stop here. The trigger is probably under that little pile of leaves, senor. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Okay, we'll toss this branch on top of it and see what happens. You ready? Let her go. Look at that. The rope jerked that branch right up in the air. Now get down here beside the trail. Senor, I hear something. Yeah, so do I. Somebody coming through the underbrush. Okay, let him get right on top of us, then we'll jump him. Now. Ah! Watch it, Pablo. He's got a gun. Yeah, but I have him a chance. No, no, no. Hold it. Ah! Oh, great. 
Did I did something wrong, senor? No. He'd have done the same to us if we'd given him a chance. But I wanted to get some information from uh, him. I will take a look. Uh, there is nothing in his pocket, senor, except this scrap of paper. Let me see it. See, si, see, si, here you are. La Posada, 8 o'clock. What's La Posada mean? That's the name of a bar in Santa Rosa. Mm-hmm. Sounds like he had a date. Okay, I'll keep the date for him. Maybe I can find out who's been going all out to kill me. In a moment, you'll hear the second act of Dangerous Assignment, starring Brian Donlevy, after this brief word from the Ford Dealers of America. This episode featured Elliot Reed as Drake. The beautiful new Ford. No wonder. Well, I once asked Orson Welles, I said, how did you do... Uh, so great on the radio. And he says, you just do it. Yeah. That's all. Oh, sure. You just do it. That's right. And he was the master of that. Uh, doing I mean, anything. He right. came in sometimes and did shows. I was on many of them uh, where he hadn't even rehearsed with us at all. Uh-huh. I mean, he was doing the Five Kings up in Boston. This is after the original huge impact of the Mercury Theater. And then he was, by then, he was a huge star. Uh-huh. And we were his Mercury actors. Uh, and uh, so, as I told you when we were chatting before, uh, Paul Stewart, a wonderful actor, um, and he had become, I guess, a close friend of Orson's and was very skillful and knew technique and knew all kinds of technical things. Paul Stewart was responsible for uh, really the direction of many of Orson's radio shows. And at the service for Paul Stewart, Jack Hausman, John Hausman, we were walking down the street together. Norman Lloyd, John Hausman, and I were walking down the street. And... Um, how, we called him Jack Hausman from those days, and Jack said, I, I'm so glad that uh, somebody spoke about Paul and what he contributed as a director to Orson, which was true. So, um, but Orson, uh, yeah, he could just get up on that platform, and he had ne- we'd never read it with him, nothing. I mean, it was just... But we were used to that, you see. So, I mean, we were rated. We were rehearsed. Paul rehearsed us. I mean, you've got the script in front of you. How can you... It was wonderful. It was like stealing money, I always felt. And uh, who's against that? I loved radio, and it was, as I say, it was like a steal. Those days were just wonderful, because the stress was not there. After Ford, Wheaties sponsored the program for their big parade in the summer of 1950, but it was short-lived. Dangerous Assignment ran in the States until February 13, 1953. It never achieved widespread fame. A syndicated version was produced the following year in Australia, with Lloyd Burrell as Mitchell. 